welcome to Life Hurts, God Heals. I'm one of your hosts, Kim Ward. And I'm your other host, Kurt Flagel. And on this particular episode, I am excited to introduce you to my personal spiritual director, Alan Fadling, who's also an author of multiple books, including An Unhurried Life, and the leader of a ministry called Unhurried Living. We get to talk to Alan about how we can live an unhurried life. What does unhurried living look like and how do we practice it? That's funny to say because I'm in a hurry to get started. Alan, welcome to Life Hurts God Heals. Thank you. It's great to be able to spend some time with you. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and your ministries and how you even got to where you are now? Sure. So on the personal side of things, my wife is named Jem, like a gemstone. We've been married for a little more than 37 years. And we've been kind of in ministry together all those years, even when we were engaged before that. So we've sort of lived our lives not only as husband and wife in tandem, but in ministry that way too. And we have three now young adult sons, I was going to say they're all 20-something, but our oldest just turned 30 about a month ago. So wow. that's that's where we stand there. We're grateful for our three sons. But in terms of ministry, we're coming up on our seventh year as a nonprofit called Unhurried Living. And we talk about that a few ways. Maybe the most simple is that we're trying to help leaders rediscover the genius of Jesus' unhurried way of living and leading. And, you know, I wrote about that in my first two books, An Unhurried Life and then An Unhurried Leader. But I just think unhurried is a genius word to describe the way of Jesus. He has all the time he needs to do everything the Father's given him to do. He had days that were very full. You could call them busy, but you never get a sense that he is anxious or hurried you get a sense that he is able to stop when everyone else has momentum to go. You have a sense that when the crowds keep coming, he's not at all embarrassed to go away to a lonely place to pray. He tells stories where the good guy is a, a Samaritan who stops and helps and then brings this wounded person to an inn and then promises to come back, like completely upends whatever it was he had planned for the day to serve this a wounded man on the side of a road. So I just think unhurried is a beautiful way to describe Jesus. And it's also become a way I think about how following Jesus may look in my own way of living, in my own way of serving. Nice. You mentioned two words, busy and full day. Is there a distinction in, in your mind between those two, mm. two ideas? And if so, what is that distinction? Yeah, I, I could be playing with semantics, you know, full day, a busy day, a hurried day. But Dallas Willard used to like to say, you can work hard without working hurried. And I like that very much because I too have seasons or days that are very, very full. I, I'm in one now. The fall for many people who are in ministry sorts of roles can be a rather dense one, very full, lots of engagement. So it's a challenge for me. It's a continual challenge to my own recovery from my addiction to hurry to work hard without working hurried. And, you know, you do that because busy in some ways, that's really more a factor of your calendar. Hurried, that's more a factor of your soul. That's about who you are. 
while you do the many things you may be doing. The irony is I have been hurried in an empty day, <laughs> right? I mean, because hurry isn't, isn't just a matter of having lots of stuff to do. Sometimes it's just a habit that I'm in on the inside and I bring it to my Saturday where I might have a Saturday where there's nothing to do. And I find a way to be hurried there too, or I have in the past. I'm learning how not to. So that's why I say hurried is more of a, an orientation. It's a tendency of my soul. I just think we would do well to learn to approach our life more in the spirit of Jesus. Jesus is, you know, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, you know the list. None it. of those flourish in hurry. Mm. None of them do. Patience, my goodness, by definition, it doesn't. And so I just think that the fruit of the spirit, it, there's a wholly unhurried way that I'm trying to live and I'm trying to encourage leaders and, and people in relationships of influence to do the same. I love it. In a moment, I want to tap into that idea of addiction, of being addicted to hurry and talk about that. That was definitely intriguing. But mm. first, I'm curious, Kim, what are your thoughts on the difference between those two words, busy and full? How would you define <laughs> those two things? I, I mean, I, if I think busy, I think a rush. There's like that constant feeling of pressure of knowing you only have so much time and there's that feeling of almost limitation. I've only got this much to give or this much I can do. When I think busy, it's like it's hard to be present in the moment because your brain's constantly rushing ahead to everything else. But like when you think of the word full, it's normally there's good involved. It's like, oh, my stomach's full. I ate all the food I needed or a full net of fish it feels more present in the moment. It's like, yeah, I had a full day yesterday with work and then, you know, prayer walk and then staff meeting and then pretty much right into youth ministry. And if I'd been hurried in that or considered it a busy day, then that's really exhausting because I'm not present because I'm constantly thinking about what's next. But if I go full, there's almost an invitation in there. This is a full day, but this is what God has for me for this day. So be present in every moment of it, figuring that his timing is good on this. So I don't have to keep jumping ahead to the next thing, mentally speaking. I think somewhere in scripture said something about be filled with the spirit, be full of the spirit. Yeah. Words can mean many things to us, but I think what we're all saying is that what we don't want to bring to our days is an anxious, frantic, hurried tone. Uh, it doesn't serve anyone. But the irony is, I can think of so many seasons where if somebody asked me, how are you? One of my one word answers was busy. And it was kind of half complaint and half brag. It's like part of me was going, ah, I really don't like having this much on my plate. It's kind of exhausting. But the other part of me was going, man, am I important? Lots of people need me. Lots of people want me. And it was an identity booster. So that's been part of my recovery process is realizing filling my day with lots of activity is not evidence of my value. Mm. You know, I don't achieve value from the stuff I do. I express value in what I do. And that can be the difference between hurry and unhurry. That pretty much speaks to that idea of addiction. You mentioned being addicted to a busy schedule, yeah. to busy I guess I was going to ask why we get addicted. Why is that attractive to us? But maybe that's what you just explained, the identity idea. 
I think it's one of them. I, I think maybe just to take a step deeper, I think an addictive process is when we're looking to something or someone or some activity for a thing it can't give us, but tries to give us. So I may turn to alcohol uh, because I want to feel relaxed. I want peace. Or I want to feel freedom. I want to be able to be socially, you know, fun. So I turned to alcohol because it sort of gives me a little bit of something that looks like that. But the problem is it, it doesn't actually give that to me. It actually takes something from me. It's like I'm almost borrowing peace from the future. I'm almost borrowing joy from the future. And so hurry is a, an addictive dynamic because I imagine, well, Henry Nowen said it. We live in a world where we imagine that we are what we do, and we are what we acquire or have, and we are what people say about us. None of those things are a lasting source of identity. Accomplishment, acquisition, accolades, none of those things will give me a confident, lasting sense of security or meaning or purpose or value. I have to find it in the only place there is to find that which is in the one who made me, the image of the one I'm made in. And for me, you know, hurry is when I try to get recognition from someone other than God. I try to impress people, or I try to prove my worth by all the stuff I do. And the more important it sounds, oh, the more value I think I'll get. But it's like trying to establish your identity on a treadmill. You go at three miles an hour and you're just kind of walking comfortably. You bump it to four. Now you're walking fast. You bump it to six. You're jogging a little, but you're still not going anywhere. I just think hurry sometimes is just where we're looking for something we desperately need, but we're looking in the wrong places and we go faster and faster and faster in our search. Can I step into a role of someone who doesn't know God or is really struggling in the relationship with God? Sure. What would you say to someone like that, like to show them the value of turning to God for their identity and value, to show them the importance of that? I probably would, you know, like you would, I'm sure, I'd enter into a conversation and I'd ask questions and I'd listen and I'd be curious, what are you aiming for in life? What are you looking for? What are you working hard at? What are your hopes for that? What makes your life important? What makes you feel valuable? Is that working for you? Now, if you're in your 20-somethings or 30-somethings, you don't even know if it's working for you yet. <laughs> uh, sometimes it takes a little while before you test some of these theories, like uh, the path of accomplishment. I climb the ladder, whatever the ladder is. You know, Stephen Covey used to say, the problem is sometimes you find out the ladder's leaning against the wrong wall and you get to the top of it. Mm. The thing, maybe the essential thing I want to say is we live in a world where we think we have to prove our worth, but I've discovered that my worth has always been a gift to me. And I think that's a much more settled, stable, reliable way to realize how valuable I am. And I would want that to feel like an invitation to someone who might be really frantically trying to prove something they already have, mm. which is the love and the treasuring of their creator. That's beautiful and powerful. It's very freeing. I like freedom. I think we're all longing for freedom. Yeah. I've been having fun listening. You know, I love fun. the word gift because, I mean, you can't earn a gift. Mm. And the beauty is, is once the gift's given, you can't lose it either. 
it's a really secure place of being that you can't get by earning it. And that's something we're all looking for if we're honest with ourselves. And that's the other part of it, right? Half the time you're hurrying, because if you're not hurrying to find identity, you're hurrying to hide from what you think your identity is because you don't want to see it or acknowledge it or deal with it. Yeah. When you say you're you know, hurrying away from what you think your identity is, can you give some examples of what you're talking about? Well, obviously, as an Enneagram 9, I go for more of the hiding and the not moving around. But I've had friends who I would say, in order to not face things, in order to not face maybe something they don't like about either themselves or their circumstances, they just made sure they were extremely busy. So they didn't have any time or energy to devote to facing uh, whatever it is that they didn't want to face. Like a friend of mine who didn't realize for a year and a half that he was depressed Mm. because he'd thrown so much stuff into his life to keep busy that hurried had cut him off from his heart. His hurry had let him put his identity in outward stuff of accomplishment so that he wouldn't have to face what was going on inside. I've done it when when I was doing youth ministry before I met you. I would say yes to way more stuff than I should have, which surprised all of us, including me, because I didn't want to face, you know, that feeling of inadequacy of like I was faking it and that if they really saw who I was, that they'd boot me out of that ministry so fast. But I found that the other side of her can just be that not wanting to face whatever it is, you know, that maybe our life has wounded us and told us this is who we are or God's trying to get our attention on something and we don't want to face it. So we add more stuff to distract our brains to keep us from going there. Yeah. Yeah. There's a kind of hurry where you're running towards something and there's a kind of hurry where you're running away from something and neither of them help very much. I've sometimes said even you know, it's even ironic that sometimes I have pursued the work of God as a way of avoiding the face of God. Wow. So I just busied myself with, you know, the work of ministry, whether it was in a local church or some other setting. And who could argue I'm doing God work? Come on now. You know, I'm just filling my life with all kinds of good things I'm doing for God, all except for the part where I'm not really listening to what God would like to say, you know? And uh, so, yeah, Kim, I, I definitely hear you. You know, there's a way that hurry can be a way of numbing myself or avoiding or escaping from actually a door God's inviting me to walk through, which would in fact be a doorway into a greater experience of life than I'm currently experiencing. When you think about it like that, I want to go through that door. How do I go through that door? Especially for those of us who it's very easy to say yes to way more things Hmm. than we have time for or energy for in a day how do we slow down are are there practical ways of looking at things and spiritual practices that will help us yeah i i think there are i mean maybe before i i mentioned some practices that are helping me what i would say is there's a direct connection between my recovery from hurry and my ability to say yes and no the ways i want to like a lot of the yeses I say is because I don't want to disappoint anybody. Mm-hmm. And if my identity is very much rooted in what everyone thinks about me, there's very little incentive to say no. I only have incentive to say yes. But if I realize that my identity is really far more rooted in the one who says, you are my beloved daughter, 
you're my beloved son. And I find myself growing more confident in that. Well, then I can do what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. I can say yes and let my yes be yes. Or I can say no and just let my no be no. And that no is a complete sentence. I don't have to explain myself away. I don't have to explain why I'm not doing this thing they've asked me to do. If I'm confident in my value, then I can I can say a hearty yes, but I can also say an honest no. And that makes a great deal of difference. Now, the disciplines that I think help us get there, a lot of the times it's actually the disciplines Dallas Willard defined or categorized as the disciplines of abstinence. They're disciplines like solitude, where I withdraw from normal company for some moments or a season or whatever, or silence, where I'm just still and quiet instead of talkative and loud, or fasting of of all sorts, you know, food, of course, but abstaining from media or abstaining from certain sorts of activities, because those abstinence practices open up spaces by design by practice. And that space trains us. It trains us to be a little bit more discerning. In quiet, in stillness, in silence, I see my life from a little bit of a detached perspective. I see where I've said a yes I shouldn't have said. I won't tell you the details, but today there's a perfect illustration. I was sitting here in my office. I got an email with an invitation to go and speak in another part of the country. And it was the kind of invitation I would love to say yes to. But then I looked at my calendar and I've already committed to preach at the church I attend. And I thought, ah, darn it. I can't disappoint them. I have to say no. Oh, man. And so I did. I sent the email. I'm so sorry. I would love to come and be with you. And then my wife came in about an hour later because they asked her if she would come and speak as well. And she said, why aren't you just reaching out to our church and ask if they can switch your day? That's a good idea. And so I felt like I had said yes to our church and I couldn't change that answer. There wasn't any way to do it. But as it turns out, I reached out to the person who does the schedule. And they said, oh, yeah, no problem. In fact, if you want, I can trade with one of my December days and you go ahead and take off and do that thing in November. So without a little bit of space, without a little, and in this case, without a, a good counselor, listening to me, I miss opportunities. I either run past them or I just can't see them. So these practices help open up spaces where I, t- I, I learn to be at least a little bit more discerning. Hurry narrows my field of vision. I don't realize how many options I have before me, how creative I could be in responding to the invitations that come my way. Those disciplines where I open up space is the opposite of the way I fill up space with activity. That totally helps. And as you're talking, I'm trying to put myself in the place of someone who has never done this practice of silence, of being quiet or solitude. What suggestions would you give to someone who's never made time to be silent? What does that look like? How do I do it? Yeah, isn't that a good question? For some I sound like I'm speaking Martian. I I have no idea what you're talking about. I love there's a piece of spiritual counsel from a person who was the head of a monastery in the last century over in Britain. And his his line was, don't pray as you can't, pray as you can. For example, I have many times 
in conversation with someone for whom all of this is unfamiliar, I've just said, what if you took five minutes? If weather permits, sit outside. If it doesn't, just find a comfortable spot and just be quiet for five minutes. Set your iPhone timer if you need to, so you don't look at it every three seconds to see if you're at five minutes yet. And then when you do that, just notice what happens. What happens in your mind? Probably you start getting itchy that you haven't looked at your phone in three minutes. That's a good thing to notice. You might not want to be the kind of person who's as attached to their phone as you are, but that's something for you to decide. And I just invite them to pay attention to what goes through their mind, what they feel in their body, what they hear in their heart. And then just do that occasionally, but realize it will train you. You're not looking for a goodie in the five minutes. You know, you don't assess the five minutes by, oh, I felt so peaceful. Oh, I got an assignment from God. Oh, I had an amazing insight. I mean, those things can happen. But if none of those things happen, the five minutes is still training you. You're learning to stop. You're learning at least for five minutes that every impulse that arises in your heart and mind does not have to be chased. You could just take five minutes and just notice the stuff that happens. And then once you've noticed it, you can decide what you'd like to do about it. My wife, Jim, just released a book a month ago. The title of it is Hold That Thought. And <laughs> it's a great book about this idea of the thoughts that go through our heads. And one of the ways she talks about it is, and, and she's quoting Viktor Frankl, and, and now I'm in total paraphrase land. We live in a culture where stimulus immediately leads to reaction with no space between them. But in fact, between stimulus and response, there's actually a space. And in that space is our freedom to choose and to grow. That's the essence of what Viktor Frankl says. That's the value of slowing down. That's the value of a practice like that. You get a chance to look at the stuff running through your head and rising in your heart and decide some of these things. Yeah, I want to pursue that. I think that actually is a direction I want to act. That one sounds a lot like anxiety. I'm not sure I want to hand the steering wheel to that thought. So over time, you can start to train yourself to even just notice your thoughts um, and decide what, what you want to do with them. The one thing I would say is just start simple and start small and be gracious with yourself and call it an experiment and give it a try and taste and see if it's good. And if it is, you might want to do it some more. And if it isn't, well, you still have a successful experiment. You found out something that didn't work so hot for you. That's all right. Why don't you try this? That's how I might respond to groups of leaders, Christian leaders even, for whom these kinds of disciplines are, are very unfamiliar. And so I always encourage them to start simple and small, just like you'd plant a seed. You know, seeds are unimpressive, but you plant it and you tend it and you give it time and it can turn into something remarkable with a little patience and a little persistence. Mm. You mentioned the phone and it's nice when you can take the phone and set a timer on it. So it actually helps you avoid distractions because normally the phone is the biggest distraction or one of the biggest. But even in the silence, what would you say to someone who says, my, my biggest problem with sitting and being still is all my distracting thoughts. Yes. I, all these thoughts start running through my head while I'm, I'm trying to be silent. What would you say to someone like that? Well, the, first, the, the first thing I would say is welcome to humanity. <laughs> you know, you are not alone or unique or odd in this dynamic. This is human. 
This is what happens to all of us. Uh, this is what happens to monks who've been monks for decades, you know, who practice these disciplines. Our minds are chatterboxes. Henry Nouwen's metaphor was that our, our minds, our brains are like monkeys in a banana tree, jumping around. In fact, I remember that image. This, I forget which book he writes that in, but I was actually speaking to a group of bishops in Uganda. And we were in this conference center, and I started quoting that quote from Henry Nouwen, monkeys in a banana tree. And then suddenly, right out the window, right in front of a banana tree, two monkeys started screaming, just screaming at each other. So much so that we just all had to stop and laugh and said, that's what my brain sounds like. That right there. You know, not to take that too far, but I, I just want people to understand when we practice solitude and silence, we do not enter into some oasis of calm automatically. And if I don't, I'm doing it wrong. No, no, no. The point of the silence is to notice these things. Actually, the opportunity is to, to remember a very simple insight, and it, but it's a critical insight. And that is, you are not your thoughts. You have thoughts. There's a huge difference between those two ways of understanding thoughts. If you think you are your thoughts, then having distracting thoughts says you're just a distracted person and you'll never be able to practice this discipline. But if you're a person who has distracting thoughts, then you can actually learn how to just look at them rather than being hooked by them. One writer who talks about praying in quiet said you could almost imagine every one of those distracting thoughts as though you were sitting on the bank of a river and they are the leaves that have dropped in. Now, you could just watch it float on by or you could just spend the entire time grabbing leaves and looking at them and throwing them out. Like you could spend five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes grabbing leaves and throwing them out. And suddenly now you're a leaf skimmer instead of a person practicing silence. So when you have distracting thoughts in silence, you can just say, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a thought I have quite often. Sometimes I will literally take a journal and I will just write them word for word, the thoughts that float through my head. In fact, sometimes when I've done that, I realize I, there's only about six thoughts in there. I thought it was about a hundred. There's really only about six, but they're like flies flying around in a jar. It feels like a hundred. So that's what I would say is that these practices are about realizing you are not your thoughts. You just have thoughts. And some of those thoughts are wonderful, and some of those thoughts are not so helpful, and some of those thoughts might be toxic, and you can be gentle with yourself and just notice them and then decide how you'd like to pursue them. To me, this is the language of Paul when he talks about taking thoughts captive. You really can't take a thought captive if you haven't noticed it. And too many of us are, you know, we're, we've just been trained to autopilot our thoughts. We think, we react. We think, we react. And we're not even aware of that moment between stimulus and reaction. But these practices give us a little space. I think once you've noticed the thought, the next step is to discern. And so to be still, and even if you want to imagine yourself holding that thought before God, would enable you to discern. Because again, this thought may be a friend. This thought may be an enemy. This thought may be helpful. It may be unhelpful. It may be the voice of the spirit. It may be the voice of the enemy of my soul. There's all kinds of voices that run through my head. 
temptation comes as a voice, really. And, you know, when I do this exercise, most of the thoughts just sort of come and go. They don't require three hours of activity. Now, if it's a creative idea, maybe I'll want to pursue it and make something or write something. Or That's fine. Every once in a while, a thought like that will come. But I've also got a whole collection of familiar thoughts that just recur. Oh, Alan, you're never going to be able to do that. You don't have what it takes. Why do you think you can write that book? Someone else should write that book. Every morning when I sit down to do the writing work that is a big part of who I am and what I do, I hear those thoughts of self-doubt and insecurity and anxiety. The thing is, I've just learned they've just been wrong a lot. And so I might not want to listen to them like they were my wonderful counselor. I might want to learn to just let them be kind of like, if you're a parent of little kids, you learn how to tune out the racket in the back seat even while you stay attentive to them because you love them. But, you know, you don't listen to every argument that happens in the back seat or you couldn't drive. Well, some of my thoughts feel like that back seat, and I've learned not to listen as attentively to some of those voices in my own head. Yeah, I definitely have struggled with that, too. It's hard at first to, yeah, really to be is. patient with yourself because I think we all want to do things, quote, the right way in a way that feels effective and what Kurt constantly reminds me he's like it's called a spiritual practice Mm -hmm. because you're practicing you're learning how to do it which means you don't have to do it perfectly you're not in your major league game win or lose no you're practicing you're learning how to do it and just even keeping that in mind takes a lot of the pressure off of the expectation that you have to have a certain experience or get it right with the air quotes but just sitting and finding what works. Some people being outside might be a horrible plan. (laughs) They might get too distracted or some of us being inside is, is the one where it's like, "Mm, my bed's a little too comfortable. If I'm there, I'm passing out, you know, whereas being outside helps me connect. Even taking the time to go, let's find the place where God created me to meet with him best can be helpful too. You know, Mm -hmm. cause we're uniquely created, so it makes sense that it would look somewhat different for us all. But yeah, no, I, I love the silence and the stillness and such a good reminder to take those times to just breathe. I think what you said, Kim, is a great place to end is just breathe, right? Mm. In a spiritual sense, you know, mentally, emotionally, even taking a breath in and taking a breath out and doing that for five minutes helps the mind and the body and the spirit relax. Would you agree with this, Alan, that the relaxed state is how God approaches us and our call is to respond? Absolutely. One of the two seeds in many ways of my book, An Unhurried Life, were a couple of things that Dallas Willard said. One of them, he was talking to a friend of mine and asked the question, if you had just one word to describe Jesus, what word would you choose? And, you know, they had a conversation and there's all kinds of words, one word answers to that. He's Lord, he's Savior, he's compassionate, he's loving, of course. But Dallas said, the word I would choose is relaxed. And I just think there's genius in that. It's, it's wonderful to be in the presence of someone who's relaxed. And that is actually who God is. And I don't think many of us, if we were listing the attributes of God, would put relaxed in our top 10. Uh, but I think If he is, in fact, the fruit of the Spirit is, in fact, gentle, kind, patient, 
relax may not be far from that neighborhood. Right. That's beautiful. That's the perfect place to end is that picture of a relaxed God approaching us. As we end, what we like to do is have the person who we're interviewing pray for those listening. Would you mind just taking a moment to pray for everyone listening and bless them? Absolutely. I'd be honored to do that. And so, God, you are the one for whom a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. You are not overwhelmed by the things that overwhelm us. You are greater than them. You see our lives in their beginnings. You see our lives in their endings. You see our now. And in all of that, you love us. And you have chosen us. And you want to make our lives fruitful and productive and meaningful. And you want us to know the value of our having been made in your very image. I pray that you would enable us to slow down to remember that you're with us moment by moment, that we'd remember you're the sort of God who longs to be gracious and delights in mercy, whose faithfulness really does endure forever. I pray help those listening to have a fresh sense of your invitation to come, to linger, and to learn to walk, literally walk with you through their days. Lord, what a good life this is to which you invite us. And all of this I pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you for this. I'm glad to be able to contribute, and I hope, I hope it serves your uh, community. Before we go, though, how many books have you written? That is a trick question. So far for InterVarsity, I've written three books, Unhurried Life, Unhurried Leader, and then With My Wife, What Does Your Soul Love? And then I've written two books that we published, Inhaling Grace and The Way of Presence. Those are both two-month devotionals. But those two books have now been combined into the next book that InterVarsity is publishing called A Year of Slowing Down. That's coming out in December of 6th. So up until this minute, I've written five books. But the minute that book comes out, then I've written four books. <laughs> so that's what happens. I will. Uh, and then I'm actually working on a fifth book right now that I'm almost done with a first draft for. What's the best way for people to buy books that's beneficial for you? I always just say, wherever you like to buy books, buy it there. It really doesn't matter. There isn't, from our perspective, a better place to buy them. Nice. Thanks again. This has been great. Yes. God bless you both and take care, friends. Take care. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Life Hurts, God Heals. And if you're curious to know more about us and what we offer, we are part of a larger organization called Elevate Slow, which is a disciple-making movement intent on seeing the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, planted in every culture around the world. If you'd like more information, you can go to our website, elevateslow.com. That's elevateslo.com. And as always, please remember that you are God's beloved, so be loved. <laughs>